Hello, everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. Our topic tonight is Women, Hysteria, and Medicine. Our exceptional panel of guests will take a multidisciplinary look at the history of hysteria, and through this investigation of hysteria, I think we're likely to learn a lot about how attitudes and perceptions of women, gender roles and expectations, and acceptable expressions of sexuality have changed over time. But before we begin our conversation, I'd like to mention that we're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum, one of the Pentecrest Museums on our campus, the University of Iowa. Our production partners are UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecrest Museums, KRUI Iowa City, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available, along with all programs in this series, as a free podcast on iTunes. Hysteria has a rich and problematic history. While hysteria is no longer considered a valid medical term, it was once thought to be a disease of women with a wide array of symptoms, including headaches, nervousness, excessive expressiveness, and malaise. By the late 19th century, hysteria had come to refer to some level of sexual dysfunction. In tonight's discussion, we'll zero in on the 19th century in Europe and America, a time when diagnoses of hysteria simply went through the roof. And we'll use the prism of art to launch our discussion. A university theater production of the play In the Next Room, written by Sarah Rule, will open in February, and the creative minds behind this production are here with me on stage. So happy to have you all here on a busy night. I know you have a rehearsal a little later on, and you've had a photo shoot earlier in the afternoon, so thanks. Just next to me here is Meredith Alexander, who's the director of In the Next Room. Thanks, Meredith. Oh. And uh, Jennifer Page White is the dramaturg, just next in line. And then we have Michelle Smith and Kurt Smith, two actors in the play. And at the very far end, we have Andrew Nelson, scenic designer. So thanks again for coming. Um, I have a quote here from a review of the play uh, in the next room. And the reviewer says, her real subject, Sarah Rule's real subject, is the fundamental absence of sympathy and understanding between women and the men whose rules they had to live by for so long, and the suspicion and fear surrounding female sexuality and even female fertility. What do you think? I'll go to you first, Meredith and Jenny. What do you think about that as a characterization of the play? Seems accurate to me. It certainly was a response I had on reading it. In fact, it prompted the next question in my mind, how much have things changed? Yeah. yeah. Or not. Or not, yeah. And, and what do you think, Jenny? Um, I think it's quite accurate. Um, when I started my research on this play, one of the first quotes that I found from Sarah Rule was that um, her interest in this play was really looking at the silence between people um, and how we cross that silence. And there's a lot of different boundaries that are examined in the play. There's um, the domestic sphere and the public sphere. There's the silence between men and women, between husband and wife. Um, and the, the action of the play takes place simultaneously in two rooms. So it really sets us up for the idea that there is isolation even under the same roof. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we can absolutely empathize with today, yeah. not just in the 19th century. Right. Well, in, in a second, we're going to talk to the actors and to the scenic designer, too, to see just you know, how you have made all this come to life on the stage. But um, you've done a lot of research into the history of uh, hysteria. Can you just kind of walk us through some of what you know? Um, 
Well, it's a fascinating disease. <laughs> um, the explosion of it in the 19th century, which is when this play is set, um, it's a period of notorious sexual repression. Um, so hysteria has been recognized as a disease as early as ancient Egypt. Um, it was defined by uh, in, in Hippocratic writings. Um, and originally it was thought to be a disease uh, that originated in the uterus. Um, by the time that the 19th century rolled around, they no longer believed this. Um, in, in Greek times, they thought the uterus was, it was imagined like an animal. Uh, I think it was Plato who said, who called it the animal inside the animal. And it was a wandering uh, migratory womb that uh, in times of, of uh, sexual dysfunction, it would travel about the body and suffocate the patient. And so they thought that they would have to lure it back into its right, rightful place. Um, that's not what 19th century doctors are thinking but it still has a lot to do with sexual dysfunction. And this is a time period when no one really understands female sexuality. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about the difference between male sexuality and female sexuality. Um, so it's no wonder that this is a time that it becomes an epidemic. Um, the, the symptoms expanded to include such a wide variety, um, anxiety, sleeplessness, um, heaviness in the abdomen, shortness of breath, um, and my favorite, which is the general tendency to cause trouble. <laughs> um, of course, it's being diagnosed across uh, a wide variety of women. Uh -huh. Well, uh, there, uh, obviously the play is a, uh, it has a serious subject, but it's also mm -hmm. got heavily comedic moments, and we won't be able to talk too much in detail, and we don't want to give away the plot anyway too, too specifically here, because the play will be performed at Iowa uh, in a couple of weeks. But um, there, there is a physician who is here with us today. Um, Kurt Smith is uh, the, acting as Dr. Gibbons in the play, and Mrs. Gibbons is Michelle. Uh, so I would ask the two of you to tell us just a little bit about uh, when you were first approached to do the play, um, what did you think of these parts? Uh, you are in real life married, and so I wonder whether the subjects of this, um, of this play have uh, interfered with your life at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, under PG rating, right? Mm -hmm. um, we, no, we, we've discussed, I think, a lot about, of, um, well, I guess the topic itself and how uh, things have changed or maybe have not changed, and, and I think it's important for us to further a, a, a message that, I mean, you know, if, if something is taboo and is not supposed to be talked about, then that's probably the thing you should be talking about. And so I think that's a big, very important message in both of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, do you have anything you want to say? <laughs> well, I, I, when I first read the play, um, I connected so strongly um, to a lot of the characters, but specifically the, the one I'm playing. Um, there, there's something, and, and even all, all the other characters, there's something so uh, human about all of this, and it's, it's so difficult to understand, and um, the want to make a human connection, no matter, no matter what the relationship, I think was something that was really interesting to grab on to. Um, it's, it's, it lives in me some, you know, it's easy to attach to. Sure. 
Well, and, it, and it's true, isn't it? I mean, we, we may think we've come a long way since the late 19th century, but within a relationship, it's very difficult to talk about the things that someone is somehow dissatisfied, maybe can't even put it into words, but, but there's something going on, and uh, yeah. you look for ways to, to talk about it and, yeah. and still maintain the relationship. Yeah. Um, in very, uh, in a sort of a, a broad way, could you give the sort of arc of the play? Could you tell us what the setup is? Who are the characters? Either Meredith or Jenny? This, this, is, this is what a dramaturg does. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, well, the action takes place primarily between Dr. Givings and his wife. Um, Dr. Givings is a physician who treats hysteria. Um, and it takes place right at the invention of electricity. Um, he's a man who is, uh, he calls himself a scientist, not a physician, um, which I think is quite important. Um, He's wired his house with all of the brand new electrics, um, and he has a new device that he uses in his treatment of hysteria. Um, of course, his office is in one part of the house, and Mrs. Givings uh, lives right in the same part, but divided by a wall. Um, so as Dr. Givings is bringing patients inside his house, um, there is this division between him and his wife, um, both metaphorically and structurally. Um, and the play is really about trying to cross that. Um, the more patients that come in, the more questions it provokes in Mrs. Givings. And it's about them trying to find a mutual understanding. Mm -hmm. So as you direct this play, Meredith, what are, what are the tricky elements that, that a director has to work with. Um, uh, you know, you've got a, a limited space there on the stage, and it mm -hmm. sounds as though at least you're, you're saved in one respect because this takes place in two rooms and mm -hmm. you don't have to do dramatic changes. But you still have to, um, you have to create a big house around what we just see as a dividing wall. I think the actors feel that the action of the play, a well-written play, the language goes from something that sort of has a contemporary inflection that's recognizable and familiar to these sort of poetic passages, and that helps, it keeps your interest, and while some of the time there are no dramatic things happening there with, with this world, um, I, I, there are interesting things to look at. The doctor's office is filled with all that 19th century new technology. Mm -hmm. He has the latest, he invents new things. I think we can relate to that kind of drive today. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the interactions never stop. The doorbell rings every few minutes. Mm -hmm. There's something happening, changes mm -hmm. all the time. It's very forward moving and has a, a variety of small climaxes. Yeah. What was the inspiration for you to, to pull this play out of the many plays you could do? Why did you want to do this one this year? I think because uh, I, I, I was, when I read it, and I'd read it before, I read it and I. I think it's the thing I first said. I just thought, I don't know that we've come all that far. I, certainly in women's uh, reproductive rights and in employment and various uh, other social, political areas, but there seems to be a dynamic of, trying, of struggling to figure out mm -hmm. relationships and, and getting further away, in, in my view, of in my life of intimacy, that it seems harder and harder to find that. And I don't mean just sexual intimacy, but any intimacy on a daily basis. One of the designers that, that was part of this team 
said, admitted that she actually prefers to text than pick up, than call somebody. Mm-hmm. And I thought that's what's going. I mean, there are different eras and different mm-hmm. ways in which <clears throat> we avoid uh, or protect ourselves from that contact, and that's what's going on there. And I also thought about my uh, young granddaughter, and wondering what women come when she comes of age. Uh, I mean, she's excuse me, a teenager, but when she comes into young adulthood, what is that going to mean? I mean, she's on her phone all the time. And the idea of picking up the telephone and talking to a friend, if they're not doing something, going to a movie, uh, that isn't a mode of of communication and contact with each other. The the engagement with one another is very different. Mm Um, it might be a good opportunity now to go down and talk to you a little bit, Andrew, about about um, creating this space for us where uh, all of these larger messages can be uh, understood by an audience. Um, what has been the challenge for you? Yeah, I, you know, uh, the really exciting thing to me, because I, I kind of geek out about the, the electricity part of this, uh, you know, Dr. <laughs> Givings is, uh, uh, admires uh, Thomas Edison and uh, regularly attends lectures, and uh, he has an electrocution of an elephant that he, he's, I, I believe, going out to see during the show. Uh, to, to because he's uh, Edison is in, in this uh, competition with Westinghouse in this uh, time frame uh, over the, the battle of the currents between AC and DC. So, uh, in, in this household, Edison is winning. Uh, and, but so there's all this electrical wiring that we have on the set uh, that that uh, is kind of an overlay over everything. And uh, it powered all of our sconces. You see the power that comes to these things and, and other devices in the house. So uh, that is overpowers kind of my, I'm kind of biased by it. <laughs> <laughs> by that. Uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, a lot of my research went into uh, when the, the electrical socket was patented. You know, is it going to be accurate to have, you know, certain types of components on stage? Or are we, you know, how, how can we push those, those boundaries of our, our time frame? Right. Uh, right. So lots of exciting research yeah, came yeah. into play. Well, so you've mentioned this, and also Jenny uh, mentioned it, and, and this whole business about electricity just coming into people's homes at this time, and at least upper-class people's homes, and, uh, and the idea of a brand-new kind of technology that could assist us in many, many ways, and one way is in, in terms of uh, you know, addressing ailments people have, and... Um, um, that's something we're going to be able to talk about a little bit more fully when we uh, have a group of guests up here who are going to give us background on 19th century sort of gilded age and so on and what was going on in people's minds at that time. <clears throat> but um, we, in, in delicate terms, we, we should mention that this doctor is treating women who come in with symptoms that he believes are hysterical symptoms, and, and his goal is to find some relief for these people and, uh, and has, in fact, invested in a, a device that, <clears throat> that will uh, you know, allow some relief. And so I'm sure that within the context of the play, this, this becomes funny. <laughs> and and uh, you know, comic, comic relief. Yeah, 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 yeah. But but doctors were flooded with patients at this time, right? The, these were very desirable. Um, people wanted relief from the troubles they were having. Right. Well, hysteria is chronic, um, and it's not fatal. <laughs> so. Uh, what a great opportunity for physicians to earn a little extra money. Um, and, and everyone's happy. The, the physicians are happy, and the women are getting some relief. Um, and 
it seems to be a situation that is satisfactory for many people. <laughs> but these treatments given by the doctors, at least in the reading I've done, they were not, they were considered non-sexual, they were therapeutic, and the, the people who administered these treatments really truly believed that this was just one new therapeutic method, and, and you know, we might imagine something else now, but at the time, that was, right. that was not the way they were perceived. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the other interesting characteristics <clears throat> that I think people relate to, even, even the, the young cast members, is that, that complete and utter concentration of the doctor on his patients for the purpose of science and healing who can't see what's happening in front of his face to his own wife. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one of the arcs of yeah. the play <laughs> as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I won't ask what the resolution of the play is. Everyone will need to come. This will be in February. <laughs> but, but, um, right. So, um, how many dates will you have? Does this play for a couple of weeks or? A couple of weekends. It opens weekends. on February 10th, a Friday, yeah. and goes through yeah. Sunday, and then it plays from Thursday to Sunday of the following weekend. Well, before we break, I should ask you who is doing all the costumes? She's not here, Lisa Borden. Oh. Uh, it's wonderful. We just had a publicity shoot and saw the sort of completed costumes yeah. for the first time. Yeah. They're just stunning. Yeah. She did a great job. Well, you, you mentioned, I think, a little bit earlier that some of the language sounds like sort of modern-day language, mm -hmm. which is one of the things I think Sarah Rule is known for. She yes. can place a piece in a period and yet yes. relates very directly yes. to contemporary times. And, and, mm -hmm. uh, and this play, I know, has, has um, had really rave reviews everywhere. Yes. It's done. It's been one of the most produced plays across the country since 2010, yeah. or even before that, when it opened. It was commissioned by the Berkeley Rep. That's mm -hmm. done very well. Is there any other play from another era that you can think of that sort of uh, attempts to handle these issues, not, you know, not this particular setup, but handles these issues be between men and women, gender roles and all of that, uh, similarly or uh, I've directed well? two different versions of A Dollhouse. Uh, the Ibsen and Ingmar Bergman did a script in which he stripped away all but the main characters. He called it Nora. And it takes place in a setting with a sort of paneling like a legal chamber with just a, an isolated island of a floor in the middle and a tr Christmas tree. And uh, at the time that I directed Dollhouse, one of, uh, one of the graduate students, I mean, she was in her late 20s, came to my office and said, this is my marriage. This is a contemporary woman. And I see a different take on that struggle mm -hmm. in the constructions of how we're supposed to be as women and men. And there, there's a related struggle, or maybe mm -hmm. even the same struggle, and a different mm -hmm. picture of it in this play. Well, and the relationships between the women in this play yes. must be interesting as well, because the one woman is, is played by you, Michelle. Mm -hmm. You belong in that house. You are yep. part of that house. And yet there are other women kind of coming and going for these various treatments, and, and you have encounters with them. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's an interesting sense that um, this is my house, but the women coming in have access to something that I don't have access to. So uh, a lot of the interactions are about trying to get that information and trying to put all the piece, puzzle pieces together for myself. Um, so, so there are some really interesting interactions and some really um, touching um, interactions mm -hmm. in trying to get it all sorted out. <laughs> yeah. 
Jenny, any uh, closing thoughts on the play before we, we move into another segment here? What should people be looking for when they come, other than just an enjoyable evening, you know, where they'll, they'll enjoy the play, but, but what do you think the big picture point is of this play? Um, I, I really do think that it's um, a relevant social question um, and something that's worth investigating in our lives today about um, mutual understanding and about the interference of technology in our lives um, and if that, how that affects intimacy, um, both, uh, both on a sexual level and just in regular personal lives. The this, this story is as much about women learning about each other as it is about a husband and wife learning about each other. Wow. Well, thank you all. I know you have to rush off to your rehearsals and so on, but thank you for coming. Meredith Alexander and Jenny, please stay with us. I'd like to have you in the next segment. And Michelle Smith, Kurt Smith, and Andrew Nelson, thank you very much. Appreciate it. And uh, I'd like to invite our next guests up to uh, join us now. That will be Blueford Adams and John Logston and Scott Stewart, uh, also Lisa Heineman, and we have Jenny here with us. And uh, we'll just move into a, a little more discussion about um, the, the background, sort of social context for this disease. And uh, as our guests get assembled here, uh, hi, please, that's fine, Lisa. Thank I'll just introduce everyone. Um, at the far end, we have a Scott Stewart, who's a professor of psychiatry here at the University of Iowa, also the director of women's wellness and counseling service at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Happy to have you here, Scott. Thank you. And uh, you must be Blueford Adams. Uh, hi, we hadn't met in person before, so hi. Professor of English, and uh, very glad you could be with us as well. And John Logston, professor of biology and also the director of the Pentecrest Museums here. Thanks, John, for coming. Thank you. And you all know Jenny Page White. And um, we have Lisa Heineman just next to me. She's a professor of history and also of gender, women, and sexuality studies. So um, let's just talk a little bit more about the history of hysteria and the sort of social and cultural milieu and also the medical context of this term, particularly in reference to the 19th century. Uh, Jenny told us a little bit about that. And um, I wonder, Lisa, if I could start with you for a sort of a social and cultural backdrop to this period? Well, yeah, and I think we did get a nice introduction to that in our first segment. Um, what we have here is an era in which um, increasingly all of uh, medicine, uh, biomedicine, psychiatry, um, psychoanalysis is basically interpreting all of women's problems as sexual. And I think that's kind of the bottom line there. So when we talk about the expansion of symptoms of what counts as hysteria, it's because if women are having any kind of problem at all, it must be related just to, to their sexuality because there's somehow something wrong with women's sexuality. So you have diagnosis, you have women who seem to be too sexual and women who don't seem to be sexual enough. And if they have a headache, it must be somehow related to sex. And if they have a stomachache, it must somehow be related to sex. Um, so, so this kind of way of interpreting all of women's ailments as sexual becomes sort of an embedded in this, in this diagnosis of hysteria. Um, I think a very important context, or two very important contexts, um, have to do with, um, with, with the increasing power of science and medicine. This is the century in which medicine is making enormous advances. Um, this is when, in this century, um, physicians discover the microbe. So it becomes possible to to begin uh, to begin you know, things like uh, you know um, 
vaccinations against disease, right? The, the notion that disease spreads. Um, what does that mean for public health, right? Suddenly you have an explanation of dirty water is why, pe why epidemics spread and sewage and so on and so forth. So medicine becomes very, very powerful in, in a much broader um, realm of questions and problems the society's faith face, combined with industrialization, the concentration of people in the cities. So again, there's a kind of a complex here of, of new problems and science being able to answer them seemingly in ways that they hadn't been able to solve social problems before. Um, and then again, we also have the very important development of a kind of the modern Social system of social classes um, having to do with the industrial era, where class identification is in many ways tied to a sense of what is proper sexual deportment. If you want to belong to the middle class, it doesn't just mean having a certain amount of money in your bank account. It also means having a certain kind of sexual deportment, um, a certain kind of domesticity, certain kinds of gender roles. Um, and if you don't quite adhere to that, or if you're a member of the working class, if you're poor, you're more likely to be associated with deviant sexual behavior. So here, too, we see another very important complex um, of, of the ways that sexuality is interpreted in the modern era through certain kinds of gender roles that have to do with a, a, a relatively new kind of class system associated with something very modern that I think is well symbolized by the use of electricity in yeah. this play, right? It sort of tips us off to the role of them, to, to how modern this all is. Um, well, Bluford, I think I might just go down to you next because I, I know that your work, and you're an English professor, and your work really, um, uh, in some respects, concentrates on that period, the late 19th century, That's what right. some call the Gilded Age. Yeah. Um, what, what can you um, yeah. add to what Lisa has well, said? Well, I, uh, I think what I'd add, and that was you know, very good uh, sketching out of the context, what I'd add would just be anxieties, particularly among these gynecologists who are diagnosing hysteria in women, anxieties about middle and upper class women's sexuality. You've got, um, you've got declining birth rates in um, many parts of the country, particularly the, the U.S. North, and, a, and a, you've got um, women going into, going to, um, getting better educated and going into professions in ways that they hadn't before. And so there's a sense that women are casting off their traditional domestic role, and that you know the the fear about hysteria um, is is part of a broader fear that women are simply you know are not following their their traditional role, and it it kind of melds with um, a general sense that women are being selfish, being narcissistic, that, and that really is what the hysteric, hysteric is. She's, as these uh, physicians diagnosed her, she's, she's selfish, she won't do what she's supposed to do, she won't listen to her doctor, it creates this tense um, relationship with the doctor, but there were other forms of this kind that this so-called narcissism could take. It could be uh, a woman pursuing high, the, the fashionable life. Fashionable women were seen as narcissistic. Educated women were seen as narcissistic. Women who practiced family limitation. Increasingly women were uh, practicing contracept contraception and, and, and procuring abortions. 
they were selfish. So it's a kind of a, a, a more generalized sense that women are are looking after themselves, putting themselves above their families and above their children. And most of the medical community, I suppose, was made up of men. Most of the oh, doctors. Oh yeah, were yeah. Men. There were you know female doctors, and there were uh, male hysterics, men who were diagnosed as hysterics. But mostly, you're talking about male gynecologists, male physicians, and female, you know, mostly middle upper upper middle class. Mm -hmm. Uh, so-called hysterics. Yeah. Is there much documentation of women from middle or, or lower classes ever seeing doctors about these, these sorts of things, or is it really only reported among uh, what would be considered perhaps upper-class women? I don't know if you know, but, but you know, I'd be interested. You, you yeah. see scattered references to working-class hysteric women, but yeah. that's really not who these physicians were worried about. Right, right. Um, you have the sort of private physician setting as we have in the play, and of course these these must be wealthier patients for this kind of treatment. Where you will sometimes see diagnosed among working class women are women who have been maybe uh, institutionalized for one reason or another, women who have been put into mental institutions, yeah. and there you'll often have a large proportion of, of disadvantaged populations, mm -hmm. and um, and sometimes the diagnosis is applied there, but it's in a very very different setting of treatment, obviously. Right, right. Uh, yes, Jenny. Well, I think it has less to do with who is actually sick than who the physicians saw as being sick. Um, now, working class women, um, there was a prevailing notion that they were the healthiest because they were doing work. Um, and these women, the, there was a notion, at least among a certain class, that um, the feminine ideal was one of idleness and fragility. Um, and this is what sparked all of these symptoms. Um, so I, I think it has more to do with the, um, the idea of the illness rather than the actuality. Uh, John, I'd, I'd like to bring you into the conversation. From the standpoint of evolutionary biology, what do we, what do we know about, um, oh, differentiation between the sexes in terms of, um, of uh, things that go beyond the, the apparent, you know, physical appearance of, of men and women? I mean, do we learn anything from evolutionary biology? Well, let's go back a few million years, uh -huh. uh, even a billion, and... Um, you know, so there's, there's sexual reproduction, right? So, um, and it turns out that, that organisms can be more than two sexes, but, but the common amongst animals and multicellular organisms is two sexes. And we, we can easily define female and male. And, and males, for the most part, are, are costly. Uh, the females are the ones that carry on that, you know, that evolutionary lineage. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually one of the questions that we're interested in in evolutionary biology is sort of why have sex at all because the females ought to be able to just do it themselves, right? They, they, can, they can get along without men. And actually today we potentially could do that, so we can ask that question. Mm -hmm. um, but more seriously, I, I, you know, the, the, the two sex agenda roles thing um, is part of our biology. You know, it's, it's built in. Most animals have it that, that way. Um, and, and so I... I the thing I've been thinking about listening and, and reading the play, actually, I read most of the play in preparation, is this sort of distinction between sexuality and reproduction. I, I sort of study sexual reproduction. I sort of put them together. But in fact, you know, you know, sex is there for reproduction. And at least for us and probably for most organisms, there's sort of uh, an implicit sort of um, built-in way that, that's, 
that um, sexuality uh, is is a part of reproduction. You want to do it, right? And so um, that that pleasure, that that neurobiology, is that sexuality, and and. And we know in evolutionary biology that the raison d'etre of certain things isn't necessarily the reason for, for things to persist. Um, and, and so we, we have this distinction between sexuality and, and sexuality for reproduction. And I think as a human species, we, we can separate those two things. And I think society, as we became more aware of the difference between the, between the sexes, and I think we were much more probably equally in paleo society. I, I don't have any data for that. But, um, but as we went through this sort of Victorian age, you know, that, 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 that distinction, um, wow, there's, there's sexuality, there's, there's pleasure involved in that. And, and so, I'm, you know, I'm not a scholar of the culture, but, but clearly those things are, are tied together in terms of the, the reason for reproduction. Well, well, Scott, so let's go to you then. You're a psychiatrist, and you also uh, look after women at the center at the university hospitals. Um, what, what uh, I know that you aren't, uh, you don't consider yourself an expert on hysteria or the 19th century, and, and we'll be talking a little later about what scientists know now, but, but what is your understanding of the way uh, medical doctors came to, to um, differentiate the problems women might be having from those men might be having, and you know, psychiatry beginning around this time is a serious science. Um, can you tell us something from the medical point of view about this period? Uh, well, first of all, the, the discussion's been fascinating. Um, as you mentioned, I'm not an expert in the history of it, but we treat a lot of women. The clinic actually specializes in treating women during pregnancy and postpartum. So much of what we do actually involves sexuality and reproduction. And I've had an interest in somatizing disorders, too, which we might touch on a little bit later. Um, one of the concepts I'd like to throw out, based on my experience, and this would have relevance to both men and women, is differentiating between disease and illness. And, and if I can draw a couple of uh, metaphors or comparisons, perhaps. I think disease, it's not a, a necessarily consensus opinion. But amongst physicians, anyway, disease is largely understood as having a pathophysiological basis. You can see something wrong, either by exam or under a microscope. An illness, in contrast, involves biological factors, psychological factors, social. Um, recently, I think we've been adding spiritual and cultural factors, too, obviously of relevance to the discussion. But one of the things that's been really fascinating to me is a recognition, just in hearing other people comment, that we need to understand illness in a historical context as well. Mm -hmm. um, that has relevance to both men and women because I think people, for various reasons, become distressed. Um, sometimes this involves sexual functioning, a disease state. Much more often, though, I think it involves illnesses, which may also include disease, but have much more psychological, social, cultural factors involved with them as well. And that would be true of both men and women. Well, um, and so uh, we're, we're talking a little bit about the medical, the social, the cultural context for this experience um, in late 19th century of hysteria. One thing that must have gone back to the beginning of time, continues until today, is this discussion of what the difference is between men and women. Um, you know, why, why can't women understand men? Why can't men understand women? This sexuality and reproduction is one part of that, but um, are we any closer to having... Do we understand anything better today, truly, than we ever did? Is this going to be an evolving uh, discussion and, and reconsideration as long as humans are around? In a real way, we do have competing interests. Men and women have biologically competing interests. 
Um, sperm are cheap, eggs are expensive. Um, and, you know, that's a, yeah. uh, it's a glib rule, but, but to some extent that actually drives that, that biology. It doesn't mean that we as sentient beings have to live, live and die by that rule, but that there is a, there is a biology there. Um, and, and, you know, maternal behavior is adaptive in large part, right? Yeah. Um, because the, the, the female has, has brought that, that child, in our, in our case, to fruition and, and invested a lot of energy, whereas in our species, the male hasn't done a heck of a lot to get there. Now, in our species, we actually have parental care, right? So, so, um, so there are advantages, but, but you know, there, there are competing interests between the sexes, and that differs among species. Yeah. Do you happen to know? Yes, Scott. Yeah, I was going to add to that, too. I think we do have a vastly better understanding right now of physiological processes and reproduction. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that, even down to a genetic and cellular level. The illness process, I think, is what's still not clear. And, of course, that's tied into cultural values and history as well. Right. In, in the late 19th century, there was a sense that the female reproductive system was so much more complex and took so much more energy um, than the male reproductive system just in developing and in just maintaining that women were, you know, their, their, their uteruses were, really were their destinies in a way that, you know, obviously yeah. people don't hold that view today, but um, that's a, there's a, you know, that's, that's obviously one place where I think we've got a better understanding of how things yeah. really work. Right. Well, and also mortality while giving birth. I mean, it was a very different situation 100 years ago, 200 years ago than in many parts of the world it is now. Uh, um, yes, Lisa. Well, I think one thing that we do know um, we're much more aware of now um, are the ways that social and cultural contexts, as well as economic contexts, can shape the way these biological differences are lived and are interpreted. Um, you know, there was a time when the biological facts of, of women's reproduction, of the monthly cycle, of pregnancy, um, had these social implications, were interpreted in such a way that it meant that women couldn't possibly undergo higher education. Mm -hmm. okay? So the interpretation of the fact changed radically, and that itself, the, 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 the realization that women do have enough energy to reproduce and get an education, for example, to take only one example, mm -hmm. itself then has consequences. Um, that have that have have had enormous impact on our society. So I think um, I think in thinking about about ways that that our culture works with biology um, is a very important part of the equation. And um, and I think that uh, that that we do understand more about how deeply our uh, our interpretation of biology um, is shaped by other non-strictly biological mm -hmm. factors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Jenny, do you have thoughts on this topic? Well, I keep going back to the idea that I think hysteria is historically a behavioral disease. Um, and if I'm to think of that in the context of today, um, it, it makes me think of expectations for gendered behavior, not on the level of disease, but just expectations of behavior. Um, and that's certainly, a, you know, it's, uh, there are courses in this, <laughs> so I'm sure that we are more aware of it now than we were perhaps in the late 19th century, but um, not that we are at the end of our journey in understanding yeah. how expectations for behavior are, are controlled. 
or constructed. Well, so we, we've talked uh, about sex, we've talked about reproduction, we've talked about biological urge and all of that, but um, gender roles in, in, a, in a larger perspective. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. The expectations in this period, the 19th century, we've gone into that a little bit, um, but, but what were the expectations for men of a certain class, uh, the men who would have been married to these women who would have been uh, in, the, in the upper class here in America? Let's go to you, Blueford. Just there, there's still a you know a strong sense. You still had a strong sense of uh, you know gendered spheres at this time, although that was being transgressed in all kinds of ways. You know, among among all classes, including among um, the you know these upper uh, the middle and upper classes who were you know creating this kind of uh, crisis around hysteria. So, I mean, it was you know. Uh, when, you know, men were watching their daughters go off to college. They were you know, sometimes even watching their daughters become doctors and even lawyers and ministers. And there was a, you know, by the by the late 19th century, was you know becoming a a more conventional thing. Although you know, we're obviously we're talking about the urbanized, you know, mostly you know mostly urbanized, better educated parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, during this whole period, middle of, of the 1800s, railroads, rail travel, all of these things had changed so much, early industrial revolution, and, uh, and the sense that a person could go somewhere and even recreate oneself. Um, I, I think that that's part of the American mythology anyway. And um, I was wondering if any of you could comment on um, whether this whole business of hysteria was, uh, was it a diagnosis that went beyond European cultures and America? Uh, is this something that has uh, been seen even by another name in other cultures around the world, or perhaps even still is? That is the case, actually. And, and to clarify, I guess my personal view would be that hysteria was, and these current illnesses are, illnesses as opposed to diseases. Yes, yes. Sometimes the two go together because you can certainly have an exaggerated response to a real physiological illness. Sometimes they don't. But I think the, the illness experience, as the other panelists were mentioning, is really part of the culture and the experience of the person. And treatments for that are also culturally sanctioned as well. Mm-hmm. And then uh, to be a bit of an iconoclast, I think oftentimes they're driven by profit as well. Uh-huh. That, that much of the treatment that was provided was because there was a ready market for it, there was money to be made, an entrepreneur stepped in, and a, a uh, real skeptic might say the same thing is happening now with the pharmaceutical industry in medicine. Uh-huh. I wouldn't say that, of course, but a skeptic might. So, Having to do with sexuality. Yes. <laughs> and, of course, that's one of the great things about uh, a good piece of art, whether it's uh, artwork or play, is it really allows us to see our own experience in a different cultural context. But I, my view would be that they are, they are really illnesses, which may encompass disease, physiological problems, and you do see that in many other cultures, sanctioned in different ways. The whole you know, the medical profession was, as a profession, was still a fairly young, you know, thing by the late 19th century and you know reputations can be built this way by you know diagnosing you know by treating illness mm-hmm. not disease mm-hmm. illness. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I also like the the concept of the doctor as a scientist I, and I think that drove that home actually there was this clear sense in which he was a scientist and I, I think 
you, you, you'd be want to, to define your position as a scientist right away these mm -hmm. days. And so he had a real strong sense of his, his knowledge and, and his role as, as moving the frontiers of knowledge. Probably one important thing, you know, in thinking about, you know, is this, was this purely a Western phenomenon, um, is, is, of course, to keep in mind that much of the rest of the world is colonized by Western powers right. at this time. Um, and just as there were, uh, the, the interpretation of sexuality was weighted in terms of, um, that is to have class, to have bourgeois class status, you had to display a certain kind of sexuality, and it was easy to slur the working class as being overly promiscuous, and that was sort of a, a convenient way to remind yourself why you were doing better than they were. Similarly, it was certainly very um, much more, rather than sort of thinking about hysteria in other contexts, um, colonized people's sexuality was simply conceived as, as, as quite a different thing, quite primitive, savage. There are a number of different variations of, of how that's articulated. But again, the notion, I think like you said, of, of the fragility of, of sort of the bourgeois Western woman in the era of industrialization um, is also kind of counterposed to a kind of so-called natural um, savage, perhaps more healthy sexuality, but also associated, again, with, with being politically dominated, with not being part of the modern age. So again, it's very heavily contextualized um, in terms of what, what Europe, you know, the same people who are thinking about, about medical treatments also open the paper every single day and read about empire, and they have uncles and sons who are in the British civil service serving in India. This is all very much part of their lives as well. One thought, of it, if it's okay to throw out for comment from other people too, uh, again from a medical standpoint, it seems to me that uh, literally within our own lifetime, the, the, the first would be prior to that, but within our own lifetime we have had two of the most uh, significant medical changes, I think, having to do with reproduction and sexuality that I can think of in history, uh, the development of birth control pills. So for the first time in history, women literally had a method to control their own reproduction which I think is one of the most significant events in human history, frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other one, which you alluded to before, would have been a bit earlier, but that, that becoming pregnant is no longer viewed as being a potentially fatal condition. Mm -hmm. And it was, uh, as, as uh, short a time ago as a century ago. So I'm, I'm curious about, from other people, how those factors play into your understanding of sexuality earlier and then how we're dealing with it now. I think that's, you know, Crucial, you know, women had every reason to avoid having sex and having babies. I mean, that the risks were enormous. So, you know, how how could you enjoy sexual relations on some some level when it, this could be fatal? You know, so if part of you know if one version of being hysteric was I'm not going to have sex, then you know there was a real rational reason for that. Yeah. Also, uh, women avoiding sex in the 19th century is um, very much a feminist notion in the same way that the sexual revolution of the 60s was. Um, it was an avoidance of being looked at as a sexual object. Um, so uh, having control over that part of your lives was very much um, a feminist notion. Uh, Scott, when, when you are talking to patients uh, these days who are having problems, you, you said you concentrate kind of on postpartum and, uh, and other uh, pregnancy-related 
yes, counseling. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. Um, how much do you feel, uh, from your point of view as a, as a physician, how hard is it for women to talk to their partners about the problems they may be having, either as, as themselves or within the relationship? Uh, good question. Well, my, my experience has been largely that uh, people are much more open about it, and having been in practice now for about uh, two and a half decades, I think that's changed a great deal over time. Mm -hmm. um, I was really fascinated with the earlier panel discussion and, and the, the influence of intimacy on that, though, and I think that's where the real problem lies. So in, in terms of talking about actual uh, sexuality and the physical act of reproduction, I think most people are fairly open about that now and able to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Still some problems, but more so than they had been. Mm -hmm. But the intimacy part and how that's connected with sexuality, I think, is still a difficult topic. Yeah. And then um, looking at, at the influence of um, prevailing religion or religious um, attitudes in different times in, in history, um, I don't know if religion figures into, any religious figures come into the play. Um, I don't know if any of that is present in, in the next room. It, it's not really no real discussion of a that. part of yeah, the play. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I wonder, uh, perhaps, Lisa, if you have any thoughts about the, uh, what was considered proper. Was that also sort of mandated by one's church? Yeah, I mean, I mean both of the, the major Christian churches, the Protestant and the Catholic churches, um, were, were basically pretty sexually conservative and also had, um, by, by today's standards, and also had, um, had very clear notions by and large about proper gender roles, although some of the um, uh, Protestant churches that were maybe less, associ less associated with, with the establishment, you know, you've got the big establishment Protestant churches, and then you have sort of the, the, the more grassrootsy kind of churches would often, in fact, have charismatic women preachers, for example, and that's mm. certainly a break from what one might think of conventional gender roles, um, and these might be women who, who you know, were not going to be domesticated, but were understood to have a spiritual vision, so you do have that kind of um, a, a, a exception, but, but yes, I mean, the churches are very powerful um, in structuring um, people's communities, um, the expectations of families and neighbors about proper gender deportment and proper sexual deportment. Um, so that certainly plays a role. In, in some European states, the churches have an official role Right. Um, in in some states, yeah, that that really really sort of varies country by country, whether it's sort of entangled with the legal system, um, but it didn't necessarily matter because the cultural impact was enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that here in in America in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were women who were were charismatic mm -hmm. speakers like this, and some religious speakers who. It seemed to when when they spoke and the things they did really drove the crowd into mm -hmm. into sort of a mass hysteria, yeah. a very emotive um, experience. Mm -hmm. And how, how does that play out in a in a society where it's sort of it's part of the deal? You go to hear this person, you know that mm -hmm. you're going to get wound up, and it's sort of acceptable maybe to yeah. to yeah. show this other side of yourself. It becomes a sort of an, an, an acceptable yeah. outlet. Yeah. But there too, again, I wouldn't underestimate the importance of again this class division. Um, you know, it's, you know, Episcopalians might look down on those Baptists, you know, for, yeah. <laughs> for, for having those kinds of revivals. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other important element here is that uh, for the context of this play, we're talking in a sense about the, the scientific community, the medical community, the community that considers itself to be much more modern than all of that, highly rational. Um, 
that the historical figures, I mean, these are fictional figures, but their historical equivalents probably did attend church, they got married in church, they baptized their children, but nevertheless, they considered themselves to be part of the era of science. Um, So there's an interesting tension between a kind of a, a cultural conservatism connected with religion and a modernized version of gendered and sexual codes that still are very disadvantageous to women, Mm -hmm. right? But science is articulating those in different ways and, um, you know, again, has a a complex relationship to the Christian churches in this regard. I just could see that in the the doctor-wife relationship, um, Mm -hmm. in that that there was that tension, which was mentioned in the previous segment, right? Mm Um, you know, he was a scientist, but yet he didn't see what was going on actually in his in his room, and his mm-hmm. and his wife was not able to to be part of that part of his life. Yeah, yeah right. they were clearly segregated, and I think mm-hmm. that that was a very brilliant aspect yeah, of, that, yeah. of the play. Yeah. Not to be too facetious, Scott, but is it fair to expect? people who are physicians and doctors, to have everything worked out in their own families, you know, to be able to see everything. <laughs> well, psychiatrists do, but the other doctors struggle with that from time to time. Um, I hope my wife's not watching. It, yeah, it, um, I think one of the intriguing things, and this would perhaps reflect my own personal perspective as a physician, but a number of people have talked about that disconnect, and for me, uh, it makes perfect sense that, that, that uh, somebody who was a physician and was trained in that way, and you're, you're one of the first things you learn in medical school, of course, is to maintain appropriate boundaries with patients, maintain ethics. It's drilled into your head, so if you're providing treatment because of that training, of course you would see it as completely non-sexual and not violating any boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's something perhaps you can only get from a, a third person's perspective or a historical perspective. Uh, that, that we see that perhaps is involving sexuality now, but I'm, I would have to think at that time, given the training the physicians received and mm-hmm. the same kind of ethics and boundaries, uh, probably not quite as extensive, but similar to what we get now, that they wouldn't see it as having involved sexuality at all. Right. So that for me, given my training and the way that physicians are trained now, that, that split is not good. Mm-hmm. It's not a good way of doing training, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we want to mention delicately, but mention nonetheless, was that with, with the advent of electricity in one's homes and so on, the particular appliance that this physician was using became something you could order out of the Sears catalog. It became something that um, many families or individuals purchased for you know, relief of symptoms in their homes. And I believe your, your article in the paper indicated that um, a full decade before uh, irons and what was the other one you mentioned? Uh, uh, oh, the vacuum cleaner? Vacuum cleaners and irons. Technological yeah. uh, electrical appliance invented. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that says something for the fact that people felt that they had a need, were interested in, in finding this uh, relief in their homes, and, and uh, became became aware of a, of a solution to one part of this problem. And Lisa, are you, are you ready to say something? Well, I should say that, you know, it's, there, there's evidence that um, the appliances were marketed. <laughs> what we don't know is how much they were actually used. Yeah, yeah. And we don't know by whom they were used. We do not have a sense of how many doctors actually purchased these things and used them with their patients. Right. We don't actually know right. that. Right. Um, 
it, it, the, the, the difference between advertising culture <laughs> and consumer behavior um, is something that's, that's worth keeping in mind. We don't actually act like automatons in response to advertisements. So there is this very interesting history of the marketing um, of small electronics for therapeutic uses and so on and so forth. Um, but I think before we get too far with saying, wow, this is the way hysteria was treated, we should take a step back and think mm -hmm. about what we actually do have evidence of. Yeah, sure. Sure. I just was uh, in San Francisco. There was an exhibit on Houdini, and uh, went to see this exhibit. It was very interesting. Lots of newspaper articles there about, you know, at the time, late, uh, well, early 1900s, late 1800s. There were um, there was a great interest in seance, interest in seances, you know, reaching people beyond this world and so on. There was, it seemed it was a very curious uh, time. People wanted to wanted to. I'm sure and probably throughout history when someone loses a loved one, you know, they, they look for some way to communicate. But this was nonetheless very, very much in the news in that era. And I, I think that this, you know, onset of uh, technology, lights that were not, not gas lights any longer. I mean, it was a very crazy time, almost as crazy as ours in the sense that every day there's something new and someone's imagining what you can do with this uh, technology. So uh, I, I don't know. You know, highly ironic that you there are they are marketing these products, you know, through the mails or whatever at a, at a time when, um, in the wake of the Comstock laws, just you know, what had been a pretty uh, pretty vibrant market for uh, you know reproductive control devices, syringes and whatnot had been you know slammed shut. There was a People were going to jail for uh, marketing birth control devices and birth control information. So there's this, you know, that sits really, you know, kind of strangely alongside the the, the news that um, that they're marketing uh, these devices that nobody here will name, and the, the <laughs> devices that will go unnamed. And, and the obscurantist <laughs> marketing continues today, right? Yeah, uh, right. And, yeah. you know, back massagers and the like, you know, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, from, I, I had one other comment, if I might, and that's from a medical standpoint. It just struck me that there actually is a similar phenomenon going on right now. It has nothing to do with sexuality, uh, but it's the marketing of medical marijuana. Um, you know, people throughout history become distressed. They look for ways to, to relieve that distress. The, the culture, sometimes science-based, but uh, comes up with some kind of sanctioned way to relieve that distress. And if there's a demand, there are people out there who are going to market it and try and make money off of it. And that, in fact, is happening with uh, medical marijuana at the moment. And I think it's another good parallel because we're struggling with the culture, culturally uh, and religiously as well about how to manage that. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastically interesting. Thank you so much. Um, so, Lisa, we'll call you back later on, and thank you, Jenny. And, John, I'll see you a little bit later up here. Um, Blueford, if you could just hang around, I'd appreciate it. And thank you, Scott. We'll see you later as well. So, please say thanks to our guests. <laughs> Thank you.
This is World Canvas, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. We invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. Links to the broadcast can be found at International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu, and the full World Canvas series can be seen on UITV and is available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. Uh, I'd like to invite you all to the next program in this series, which will be held here in this room on February 10th. The topic is the history of sustainability. We have an amazing group of people who will be here that day, so uh, please look for the news and check our website, and you can see who they all are. That will be at 5 o'clock on Friday, February 10th. And uh, here I think we're just about all set, so we have our next group of guests here. And in this uh, segment, we're going to talk a little bit about literary and artistic representations of hysterical women. What, what were the portrayals in literature and in opera and in theater um, uh, of people who had sort of gone over the edge and were called hysterics or mad women in the case of one of the presentations that Kitty Eberly will make. So let me introduce the people here on stage. We have Blueford Adams at the far end. Thanks for sticking with us. And Kim Mara, who's a professor in theater and in American studies here at the University of Iowa. And Teresa Mangum, a professor of English and also the director of the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies here on campus. Hi. And uh, Catherine Eberly, or Kitty Eberly, who's a music professor here at the university. So thanks so much. And um, I think what we'll do first is, is just ask you to talk just a little bit about uh, how women in the theater, I'll just go to you first, Kim, um, in the theater, which you're so familiar with, and I know uh, you've done a lot of work on this sort of turn of the prior century uh, theater. Um, what was the training for actresses at that time to play women who, had, who, who were hysterics or who had to show excessive emotion? Um, what can you tell us about the way theater approached these topics? Well, it, it's pretty interesting, actually, because the theater is sort of one of these arenas where ideas about hysteria and its treatment kind of seep and affect it in ways that might not actually be named hysteria, but you, you see some of the same patterns. And certainly this was the case with the training of actresses. And actually, if we look a little bit at this history, it sheds kind of an interesting light on the whole question of what did the women who were going to the clinic that's represented in the play think was really going on and, and what sort of social camouflage might have been at work to sustain that. So the example of actress training um, uh, is going to give us a, a little different angle here. And, um, you know, the key to understanding the approach to actress training goes back to something that was raised in the previous session that I think Lisa Heineman was talking about, that, that women's emotional production, and if you're going to act, you need to emote, that was understood as, as coming from the womb. In other words, as, as coming from someplace deeply embodied and, and sexual. So this predates the modern kind of Stanislavski-based tradition of actor training that, that, that's psychological. Okay, so now we've got a situation where we have to get the emotion out from somewhere uh, deep within the body. And the first kind of formalized approach in professional acting training schools was highly physical, based in the techniques of a French uh, guru named Francois Delsart. And it involved a lot of calisthenics, 
and for actresses, one of the, the favored calisthenic exercises was swinging. Because when you swing, your, your pelvis is moving, and this was thought to, to realign the pelvis so that all of that pent-up energy in the womb could somehow be expressed. And frequently, the exercise was paired with a reading of a text, and a favored text was this poem by Rose Hartwick Thorpe called Curfew Shall Not Ring Tonight, which in the poem, it, it tells the story of this, this woman whose lover is slated to die by the midnight bell. He's in prison, so she has to climb this high bell tower, and as the bell starts to swing, she makes this tremendous leap and grabs the clapper of the bell to stop it with the flesh of her hands, and of course she's, she's swinging. So these actresses in these acting schools are reciting this text while doing these exercises. <laughs> and uh, there was actually a very amusing satire that was written um, in 1889. So right, the, the play in the next room is set in, in the late 1880s, and this is, this is right at that moment. And it's called um, 40 Minutes with a Crank or the Cell Dart Craze kind of turning, <laughs> doing a little turn on um, Del Sartre. And it features this, this acting guru named Archimedes Abbott, named after the classical philosopher who, among other things, invented the screw. And his assistants then call him in the play Old Screw. <laughs> and this client, this young woman, comes to the acting school for her lesson her name is Miss Minnie Moneybags. And Archimedes greets her, old screw greets her, and takes her to uh, the so-called curfew department where she goes behind a curtain, and we've been told that there is a swinging apparatus installed back there. So we don't actually see everything that's going on. We only hear it. But he gets her um, attached to the, to the swing, and he says, you know, now swing, my pretty. And we hear the crack of a whip, and we hear her crying, oh, oh, professor, oh, oh. <laughs> and this goes on for several minutes, and then finally uh, she comes out, and she's rubbing her shoulders and talking about how marvelous it is uh, to have been taught to feel, whereupon old Screw sticks out his hand and says, Five dollars, please. Uh, so this, you know, it's a very interesting piece, and it, it, it sort of suggests that, well, there was some understanding that this sort of stretched the bounds of, of propriety. Might even have been a little abusive, but you know, we hope we hope it 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 was enjoyable, and it certainly was profitable for the the teachers who were administering this because acting training. Um, you know, like uh, therapy for hysteria, was addressing a chronic condition. A lot of the women who pursued this training never actually made it into the theater, but they thought it, it might be kind of a neat idea to try and become an actress. But to do that, you, you had to be able to emote. So if they took enough of these lessons, you know, maybe they'd be able to, and they were happy to go to the school and pay their $5 and uh, get the training. So... Um, by the way, one of the, uh, the, the historical instructors who was at this acting school that this spoof was thought to be a parody of uh, was a man named David Belasco, who went on to become one of Broadway's storied directors. And his breakthrough success 
uh, was with a play called The Heart of Maryland, uh, in which in the climactic scene, one of his acting pupils, who he made into a big star, a woman named Mrs. Leslie Carter, uh, did exactly what, what happened in the poem by Rose Hartwick Thorpe. That is, she had to climb a 35-foot ladder to a bell tower and at the climactic moment leap and grab that clapper and swing uh, you know, 35 feet over the stage floor. And she did this 473 <laughs> times. So when you ask what was involved in the performance yeah. of emotion, you know, a, a hysterical symptom, that sort of physical challenge was a big part of it. Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Always <laughs> tough to follow, Kim. Mark. Yeah, no. <laughs> okay. Well, no, no, no. This will be fun to hear what you have to say, and Blueford as well. Talk a little bit about literature at this period and the way women were represented there. I'll just go to you first, Teresa. Well, am I, is that good? Um, I want to put a pitch in as part of this for the humanities. Uh, and, and we've been talking in these wonderful uh, comments we've had so far about the history of sexuality in the 19th century and its link to questions of women's madness uh, or suspicions of women's madness. One of the things that's really exciting about being a scholar in the humanities is that we are figuring out completely new ways. The humanities are disciplines that are devoted to interpretation, to learning what culture means, to thinking about what different kind of actions and attitudes might signify about our desires, our hopes, our fears, our anxieties, which often come through in art and literature and theater. And in the last century, in the 20th century, at mid-century, after a hundred years of people claiming that the Victorians had no interest in sex whatsoever, that they were the buttoned up, you know, uh, um, sexless puritanical crew we often see depicted in, in images and movies, that in fact we have a French philosopher, Michel Foucault, who stops and says, you know, any time a subject is so actively not spoken about, you can assume that people are thinking about little else. <laughs> I think we've seen a little bit of that on stage tonight. Um, so that... Uh, so that Foucault argues that actually the, the, he's really interested in the way a culture, a society, gets its members to police their own behavior in order to get the majority of people in a community to behave in concert with everyone else. And that often requires the suppression of desire, suppression of pleasures, pleasures that would interfere with other people. And so Foucault taught scholars, he really transformed the way Victorian studies works, because he taught us to go back to those novels and that art we thought we knew and look with different eyes at rather than assuming that repression and suppression were the values of the culture, were, were really what happened in the culture, to rethink those questions of who's power was served by imposing that kind of suppression. How did that help the state function, communities function? How did that help push people who weren't willing to cooperate with a larger group because they wanted something different, push them to the margins? The other huge change in the middle of the 20th century was feminist theory and feminist activist who started to ask us to go back to look at uh, art, literature, history, 
and ask new questions about women's status and look at what we looked at all along, asking a different set of questions about what might that behavior mean? What might that story, the way it's told, mean? And I just want to read you one little short passage from a fabulous 19th century novel that you should all buy and read. It is by a woman writer named, lady, uh, named Mary Elizabeth Braddon, and she was a huge, uh, she was an editor, she wrote for magazines, she wrote a shocking number of novels, and she was the leader of a, of a group of writers who wrote in what was called sensation fiction. So they were really marketing their books to be, to deal with topical issues and court cases and charges of adultery in the news, all sorts of, of hot topics. And in one of her great novels, Lady Audley's Secret, she tells the story of a beautiful doll-like little woman who looks like an angel and who, it turns out, is a, an early version of an hysteric. The novel wants to, is, is asking, is that, is that what she really is? So in the novel, she is, her mother has had, uh, at the moment of childbirth, has gone mad, but her madness is the madness of Ophelia. So she's beautiful and like a little girl and silly, not dangerous, which is this whole new image of madness that Charcot later makes famous in his photographs of all these hysterics who somehow, oddly, all act the same way. They all <laughs> reproduce what Ophelia was like, which is really interesting. <laughs> but in this case of Lady Audley, there is a great, she, they think she has murdered her husband. And it is so terrifying to the community um, that this tiny, petite little woman who looks like an angel, that that surface might be deceptive. And I think this is also part of what drives the interest in hysteria, the fear that what you see on the surface of a woman might be shockingly at odds with her, in, her inner self, but that she would use that feminine beauty to lure and seduce men into doing her will. So is she dainty and harmless, or is she just a brilliant performer who knows how to manipulate? So let me just read you a quick little paragraph to show you the way the act of interpretation can work, because you've got a family trying to decide whether they'd rather have a murderess in the family or a madwoman. <laughs> So a doctor has been called, and he says to the man of this wealthy family, the head of household, you would wish to prove that this lady is mad and therefore irresponsible for her actions, Mr. Audley, said the physician. Robert Audley stared, wondering at the mad doctor. By what process had he so rapidly arrived at the young man's secret desire? Yes, I would rather, if possible, think her mad. I should be glad to find that excuse for her. And to save the, a chancery legal suit, I suppose, Robert shuddered as he bowed in assent to this remark. It was something worse than a chancery suit that he dreaded with a horrible fear. It was the trial for murder that had so long haunted his dreams. How often had he awoke in an agony of shame from a vision of a crowded courthouse and his uncle's wife in a criminal dock, hemmed in by every side by a sea of eager faces. And so the doctor ends up speaking to her, and he comes back and says, I have talked to the lady, and we understand each other very well. There is latent insanity, insanity which might never appear, or which might appear only once or twice in a lifetime. 
It would be a dementia in its worst phase, perhaps acute mania, but its duration would be very brief and it would not only arise under extreme mental pressure. The lady is not mad. She has the cunning of madness, but the prudence of intelligence. I will tell you what she is, Mr. Audley. She is dangerous. <laughs> well, thank you. And tell us the name of that book again. Uh, Lady Audley's Secret. Lady Audley's Secret. <laughs> Great. Well, uh, Bluford, let's, let's uh, turn to you and talk about um, your perceptions from the literature that you read and that you teach. Yeah, well, the one that's obviously got to uh, spring to mind for uh, an Americanist who looks at the late 19th century is a short story by Charlotte Perkins Gilman that many people probably know, it's called The Yellow Wallpaper, in which... Uh, Gilman uh, is writing, she's basing this story about a woman who goes insane. She's basing it on her own treatment at the hands of Silas Weir Mitchell, who's a, he was a famous, maybe the most famous uh, phil- um, phys- physician who diagnosed um, neurasthenia, which is a, um, a, a commonly diagnosed uh, nervous ailment from this period and um, the, the, it's it chimes with the play as you guys have described it I have to admit <laughs> I have read it because uh, the um, the na- the narrator's husband is also her physician he treats her like a child and he doesn't take her deteriorating mental condition seriously until by the end of the story He's shocked to see how how mad she's gone. So it's a um, it's a you know it's an unforgettable story written from the kind of inside. You get a, re- a kind of inside view of of uh, this growing madness, and you have the strong sense throughout the story that it is the treatment that this woman is receiving, um, and the treatment that she is receiving because she's a woman that is driving her insane. The yellow wallpaper. Yeah. 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 Well, we have some music to Great. reflect on, too. And um, uh, Kitty Eberly is, is going to share that with us. So uh, I know you have a couple of musical clips. Do you want to uh, get into it by a little discussion first? Sure. sure. Yeah. Um, Joan asked me if I would talk a little bit about how music um, personifies this whole idea of anxiousness or anxiety. And so I tried to pick two musical excerpts for you, and the first one we want to play is from probably the most famous mad scene scene in all of operatic history. That's uh, Lucia di Lammermoor by Donizetti. And um, at the time Donizetti was writing his operas, why in Paris, uh, you mentioned uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, was giving these... um, presentations at uh, social gatherings where um, he would do autopsies and things, and uh, he tried to prove his point that hysteria was indeed um, prevalent in women and um, would press on the lower abdomen uh, to um, incite hysteria and then also press harder to stop the hysteric response. And at the same time, the people that were attending these fashionable uh, showings were also attending the opera. And so as a result, these two things happening simultaneously, um, opera became really um, very interested. Composers Donizetti, Bellini, and others started writing lots of mad scenes because the, the French-Parisian society was very entranced by this. They thought it was quite fascinating. 
So um, all of a sudden, when um, the uh, particular in Lucia di Lammermoor, we get to the second act, why Lucia has this 18-minute-long scene, we call it Shana in Italian, and um, where she goes really bonkers. And it's so fascinating that audiences just love this, and they all wait for that moment. And in this musical excerpt we're going to hear, we'll hear Natalie Desay singing. She's one of my favorite uh, actresses, uh, singing actresses because she is such a fine actress. And what's fascinating in the Donizetti setting of music, to try to show you how anxiety might be portrayed in music, for me, is it sounds so lovely when you hear the opening of the scene, because it starts out slow, and she's hallucinating, and the flute is playing in the background, and so forth. But as the scene evolves, it starts to go faster and faster, and she sings lower and higher and louder and faster, and it is portrayed in quite an interesting way. So we'll play this first excerpt, hearing Natalie Desay singing the end of the mad scene from Lucia di Lamamon. Thank you. It's sort of the musical equivalent of swinging from the clanging That's bell. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes tremendous stamina, not only to sing the whole opera, but to do that scene, oh my goodness, yeah. because you're wandering around amidst all the chorus members and reacting to them and, and responding, meanwhile hallucinating, and to show the palpitations of your heart and the pallor of your skin and the fainting kind of seizures that uh, one might go through to interpret that. It really takes a tremendous actress. And then, of course, there are all of those high notes and low notes 
notes and fast notes and loud notes, yeah. so it's, it's really extraordinary. Yeah. And I wanted to show a contrast uh, with a, a more modern-day uh, example of anxiety uh, taken from Dominic Argento's uh, song cycle called From the Diary of Virginia Woolf. And um, this is actually taken from uh, the diaries of Virginia Woolf. In fact, um, and then individual songs are, make up the whole set of songs. It's sung by a mezzo in this recording, Janet Baker. But I thought it was so interesting to contrast because I find the Donizetti almost pleasing and easygoing in terms of uh, it doesn't really, other than the fast notes and high notes, doesn't show portray anxiety as I perceive it. And in this example, you'll hear fast notes um, and interesting intervallic leaps, but the rhythm really heightens the emotion even more for me. So I wanted to share a little bit of this. You'll hear the text, why is life so tragic? Why, why, why? So like the little strip of pavement over an abyss. And as maybe some of you know, um, Virginia Woolf struggled with some mental illness during her own lifetime. So it's an interesting excerpt to include in this particular cycle. Can you play that excerpt for us? So it's such an interesting contrast to show the aspects of anxiety in, in a modern-day setting and then one that would have been a 19th century setting. And how interesting is it that the composers choose to use a rhythmic device in this second example of da 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 It really gets your heart beating, and uh, you could sense a little bit of maybe angst uh, just listening to that little on the text setting of Virginia Woolf. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's fascinating to me. No, thank you for sharing that. And you also train singers, so I imagine you've had to, to help them find these various emotional uh, ranges that uh, Kim was talking about. Well, that's true, but um, the average uh, college student isn't working necessarily on mad scenes. Those are usually done by <laughs> sopranos. <laughs> 
but um, the, they're, they are wonderful. And it's interesting, I brought along scores of those musical excerpts if you wanted to see them, but the, the thing that I find fascinating with the Donizetti, um, the, the, the mad scene of the time of Donizetti was really um, a tour de force for the singer. So in terms of training singers, why it takes a great deal of expertise to do that. And books were published with alternate notes that you could sing, just like you might, a jazz musician might improvise different notes. Well, for example, Natalie Desai in that first musical excerpt, every time she performs the piece, she sings different notes. So there are multiple pages written um, with optional notes written for those uh, mad scenes. And it's fascinating. And so, yes, of mm -hmm. course, we use those excerpts to help train singers because right. there are all these different variations and permutations. Before we break, does anybody have anything? Kim, are you, are you interested in saying anything else? Um, well, I just, you know, Teresa really laid out um, a wonderful case for the humanities in terms of, of coming at evidence of a phenomenon like hysteria from so many different vectors that are going on in, in the society and the culture that you really need to get out of the sphere of medicine to understand some of these these attitudes that mm -hmm. are operating. Mm -hmm. And and certainly the, the people who were working in the theater, which is after all a medium that kind of by its nature makes um, you know the subtext or, or the the unacknowledged um, I mean that's what they have to play. So on some level it, it has to be acknowledged. It has to be made made conscious. And, you know, a director like David Belasco um, very much understood about this being about a sexual manipulation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are other stories about his interactions with actresses that will bear that out, but probably aren't, aren't appropriate for this broadcast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and Teresa and Bluford, uh, any, any further thoughts? <laughs> No, I just say I, I so appreciate um, performance being brought in, both uh, theater and, and music, because I do think it's it's one of the challenges when you're uh, an academic is that we tend to think so much, uh, and we you know move everything into language, which immediately abstracts it a bit from from lived experience, and I think with topics like hysteria, it's so critical to to maintain some, some, I don't even know how to say it very, very carefully, but to maintain the awareness that analysis must take into account embodied experience, that you just cannot abstract from feeling, from emotion, from physiology, uh, the, the questions that are raised about appropriate gender roles because so much of what our education does to us, in a way, is to distance us from the body. And some historians would argue that women who were deemed hysteric in the last part of the 19th century were really fighting back hard to bring the body back into the conversation. <laughs> and, and there were actually those extremes of treatment. I mean, from what you were talking about with the yellow wallpaper where she was basically... The rest cure, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't supposed to be active, yeah. to vigorous swinging. Yeah. And, and another one was horseback riding. I mean, yeah. that was actually prescribed 
And a little incidental fact about In the Next Room is that the play is, is set in a quote-unquote resort town like Saratoga Springs, New York. Uh, Saratoga, of course, being the, the historic seat of, of horse racing, but there, there was also a long tradition of recreational horseback riding that a lot of moneyed uh, women partook of when, when they went there. And, and that vigorous motion in the saddle you know, is kind of akin, akin to swinging and would get the circulation going. So it's, it's just striking that, that hysteria was thought to have these wildly diverse symptoms and also treatments. Yeah. And to this day, you can go to Saratoga Springs and plunge yourself into this 1930s mineral bath, <laughs> ice cold and bubbling away, and that is supposed to take care of all your problems. <laughs> I'd rather ride a horse. <laughs> uh, and Blueford, anything further from I you? I can't add anything to that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you all so much. This was just wonderful. Thank you, Kitty. So Kitty Everly and Teresa Mangum and uh, Kim Mara and Blueford Adams, thank you so much. Appreciate it. <laughs> so now I'd like to invite our, our uh, last guests up. And there's people you've heard from a little bit before, but we're going to... Uh, take a leap now and move toward the 20th century and then, of course, to the modern day as well. But uh, as Lisa Heinemann and Scott Stewart and John Logsdon come up, um, uh, the, what we're going to talk about here is how the 20th century redefined everything from appropriate gender roles within and outside of the family to acceptable sexual expression. And, um, and then, you know, we want to also look at the uh, evolution of medical science and, and what, what kinds of... Um, knowledge was gained during the course of this century to sort of take us to where we are now, and um, obviously a big topic. But let's um, first talk about the 20th century and um, uh, medicine, perhaps. Let's start there, because I, uh, how about if I start with you, Scott? Um, from the time we've been talking about 19th century up until today, obviously there's been uh, so much done in the fields of psychiatry and every other kind of, of medical um, endeavor you can imagine. Um, do you, how, do you, how do you feel that what we have been talking about in the 19th century is reflected in current practice, or uh, how much has been discredited? Well, I think much of what uh, has been talked about is relevant, certainly in understanding the cultural context and historical context. Um, but as I mentioned, I think there's a number of examples that are pertinent right now. Um, um, we still have difficulty, and I particularly like the comment about the, the humanities being an interpretive Field. I think we need more of that in psychiatry and medicine generally and acknowledging that we also interpret. Yeah. Uh, so that over time, there's certainly been more and more of a recognition of physiological states that cause what I had mentioned or labeled before as disease as opposed to illness, but we still interpret illness. Uh, a good example of that, very concrete one, would be when somebody comes in with symptoms of pain or headache. We don't have any good way to measure that. And as a physician, you have to sit across from a patient or if they're on the examining table uh, standing next to them, engage whether that pain is appropriate or not. And that is an interpretive function. Right. Um, it's not often acknowledged that that's the case in medicine, though, that we do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The concern I would have, though, as a physician is that I think that some of the things that are used to treat distress or illness or proposed as treatments uh, may keep people from getting treatment that is needed for real disease conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, so we need to be very careful about making that distinction, too. And I think as we discover more and more things that have a genetic basis or for sexual functioning and hormonal basis, mm -hmm. uh, that it's really critical that people get appropriate evaluation for 
pathophysiological disease, mm -hmm. and that we keep a pretty clear distinction between that and illness, which, again, I think is heavily influenced by culture and what's sanctioned in terms of treatment. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think just as, as a layperson and non-physician, I think that when we become ill, we need some kind of treatment. You know, we expect that we can, that you look to a doctor for every, every answer to every ill, and of course, you know, there's a limit to the knowledge you may have or the ability to string together everything that's happening in this person who's come into your office. And I, I know that sometimes um, uh, medications for certain things like uh, depression can cause physical symptoms that, that might even mask something that's an actual physiological illness. But because someone's being treated for one, um, one problem, there's a side effect that you know, it must be very, very hard to sort through it all and see what exactly leads to what. Oh, oh, yes, yes. And I think uh, generally acknowledged now, which is a very good thing, I think, in medicine, that nearly all physical diseases cause psychological distress as well. Yeah, yeah. And if you have cancer, for example, it's a pretty distressing diagnosis. If you're faced with diabetes, which is pretty clearly a disease, uh, yes. there are consequences to that yes. in, in terms of lifespan that you have to deal with, change in diet and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, if I might, one of the more interesting examples, I think, recently had to do with the uh, diagnosis of what's now called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which certainly is connected with uh, hysteria, potentially physiological functioning and sexuality. Uh, it's pretty clearly demonstrated that there is a physiological basis to those symptoms. And by premenstrual dysphoric disorder, I mean um, physical symptoms and also psychological distress that some women have mm -hmm. premenstrually. Mm -hmm. There's a pretty clear physiological basis to that. There are treatments available for that as well. But there was a real controversy about whether or not that should be a diagnosis and whether it should be included in the medical manuals as a diagnosis as well because of the cultural implications of that right. and whether that's part of normal functioning or whether, in fact, that actually is a disease process. Mm -hmm. So even in cases in which some people would argue there's a physiological basis, uh, cultural experiences, gender role, history, mm -hmm. um, plays a big role in whether or not we consider them to be diseases or not. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, John, any, anything that you can tell us about, um, you, you gave us a good idea of, uh, you know, many things related to sort of the early history of, uh, of uh, our knowledge of reproduction, sexual reproduction, and, and so on. But what's happened in this century, in your field, to sort of, uh, to to clarify things that we haven't understood before related to these, these emotional and uh, emotionally related illnesses. In preparing for this, I spent a lot of time reading popular science, um, mm -hmm. and I couldn't help but pay attention to a paper that just came out a few days ago where the, or as a meta-study. So I'm going to say this in, with regard to, to the, our, our changing landscape of knowledge that we always are dealing with as scientists. Um, and and the, it got a lot of press. The G-spot doesn't exist. So the Grafenberg spot, which um, has been talked about a lot and, and in terms of women's sexuality, and, and I think there probably are some cultural aspects uh, you know, it, re related to its sort of mm -hmm. the popularity of the idea, et cetera. And I don't remember, maybe you can say when it, when it sort of came about, but um, a series of studies were put together and, and a sort of meta-analysis, meta and the conclusion was it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. and, and that may be shocking at some level, but I think it, 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 and they sort of admitted that maybe it could, but we, you know, but all, you know, there's no evidence for it. But when you think about um, 
the developmental aspects of the differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there was sort of this, this the G spot was sort of this special set of neuron, neuronal endings that a, that a female would have. Um, but yet, in, in many ways, we're built the same. You know, we, we might look differently, um, but, but in many ways, um, developmentally, we have the same uh, developmental processes. And so, um, I thought that was fascinating because, in, 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 a, in a real sense, there are some dip, apparent differences, but, but perhaps um, those aspects of our, of our neurobiology, um, the, the developmental um, physiological parts, you know, have, might have a, a much more explicit, explicit connection between men and women um, that are similar as opposed to different. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that came to mind. I, yeah. I know that wasn't what you expected. Yeah, but. no, no, no. <laughs> no, it's interesting. Um, so, so let's move to Lisa. I wanted to, to ask you to sort of walk us through this 20th century period um, uh, with an overview, if you will, but then also tell us about a, a German woman you've been writing about recently and uh, who, who really uh, created a, a new, helped to develop a very extensive industry in, uh, in her country and uh, beyond. Uh, so I'll turn it to you. Yeah. Well, to, to start with a survey of the 20th century, gee. Yeah. Um, you know, I think one interesting, you know, we, we, we have such a multidisciplinary group here and we're thinking of different approaches to these problems. I think one thing that's very good to be very sort of self-aware of is um, how much are we hearing of the actual experiences of the women in question? And how much are we hearing of various members of the medical community, how much are we hearing from their husbands, how are we, much are we hearing from various cultural authorities, and so on and so forth. And I so much appreciated the reference to Charlotte Perkins Gilman, because there is this sort of very insider, the, the, the sort of felt experience of, of first feeling miserable and then undergoing a treatment that only made things mind-bogglingly worse. Mm -hmm. um, and we do have these very interesting, um, this takes us really to the early 20th century, um, testimonies of women who were diagnosed with hysteria, who were undergoing talk therapy, um, and then from, the, from their, their psychoanalyst's notes, we get some of their own testimony, although of course filtered through how the male physician, how the male psychoanalyst took the notes. But one thing that strikes me when I think about this is that you sometimes have women saying, why do you, Mr. Psychoanalyst, want to make this all about sex? You know, I, I, I've, I've got some problems here, but the only thing you're asking me about is my sex life and my sexual development and so on and so forth. Um, and these are interesting cases because these are women who are, in a sense, able to look critically at that and say, you're setting up the terms of the question in a certain way. But, of course, you also have many, many women um, who are diagnosed. And, in fact, you know, they're, they're coming to physicians because they're unhappy for some reason because they, feel, or because they have physical symptoms. Um, quite often they'll have physical symptoms. <clears throat> But they themselves are, you know, they're, they're taking the language of the experts, and the experts are saying, gee, if you have these symptoms, there must be something going on sexually. So they themselves adopt this language and try to interpret their own symptoms that way. And I, I bring that up because it is often very easy for us to sort of lose sight of, of the, the actual women we're talking about and how hard it can be to get at their voices at all of this um, and how important it is when we do have that kind of evidence that they're... they're 
it helps to sort of put, put cracks um, sometimes in what the larger uh, interpretive frameworks are, but also to see how powerful those frameworks can be because the women, in many cases, in a sense, have no um, cognitive choice but to adopt that framework because nothing else is being offered in a sense. Over the 20th century, I think one thing that's very important to emphasize, it happens in the 19th century, but it continues in the 20th century, is of course medicine itself. People, medical professionals aren't monolithic, right? And we talked about the difference between, between disease and illness models. You, know, you have medical professionals, psychiatrists and psychoanalysts would often approach these issues very, very differently. And over the course of the 20th century, those two professions develop in different ways. Um, Freud, Freudianism becomes a, a very dominant motive um, in, in the American psychoanalytic profession. Um, the psychiatric profession becomes, moves especially in the last few decades, more towards a kind of a, 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 a biomedical model, particularly the use of pharmaceuticals, right? So understanding that, that even medicine itself is hardly monolithic, I think is very useful here. And that battleground is played out in part over exactly the questions we're talking about, how to figure out what it is um, that that's wrong with women, to put it bluntly. Um, you know, whether whether it's this, that, or the other thing, how how to figure that out? Um, is it is it some trauma in childhood that needs to be uncovered? Um, is it something biochemical? Uh, how to how to interpret all of this? And and a, a significant strand of this 20th century history has to do with with that with that battle sort of waging itself. Um, in various kinds of, of forms, both, both in the world of medicine, but also in this world that I'm going to get to now that, 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 that speaks to um, some of my recent work, re, uh, work um, a book I recently published called Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotica Empire of Beato Usa. Um, Beato Usa was really only one of many, many erotica entrepreneurs. So here's another arena in which a lot of this is going to play itself out. Um, when people are sexually unhappy, uh, men, men or women, they, they sort of think of, how, how, where should I go? Should I go to my doctor? Should I go to my minister? Should I go to my girlfriend and ask her what she knows? Should I go to my wise grandmother? Um, you know, who, who should I talk to? Who, sh who can help me with these problems? And people make choices about where to go. And one place they will sometimes go is the marketplace. Um, can I buy something that will help me? Um, is there a pill, a non-prescription pill I can buy that will help me? Is there a device? Do I need to read a book? Do I need to educate myself in some way? Is that the problem? Do I just not really understand the body? Is that, is that my problem, perhaps? Maybe I had a bad sexual education. Um, so, so what we have is this world of consumers um, trying to work their way through these questions. Um, and the marketplace becoming a very important arena. Now, this has been an important arena, of course, for centuries. Um, in the post-World War II era, in uh, West Germany, which is the locus of, of my study, but there's a lot of communication among all Western societies on these topics. Um, one particularly entre a particular entrepreneur by the name of Beato Uza eventually develops the world's largest erotica firm. When we think about the erotica industry today, we tend to think porn, right? We tend to think of what we would now call sex toys, although back then they were called sexual aids. But what's important to realize is that in, in the first several decades after the Second World War, as for the many decades prior, although pornography was part of this marketplace, it was only a very small part. 
And basically what entrepreneurs were providing were things that today are in some ways more often provided by medicine or the educational system. Um, that is, the, the number one and two items in, in slightly varying relationships were non-prescription contraceptives and basic educational books, books that kind of told you how the human body worked. And the reasons these, these were sort of the core of the erotica industry is because these items fell under the same obscenity statutes as, as pornography did. So you couldn't go to your bookstore and learn this stuff. You couldn't get the basic sex education. Of course, schools didn't do sex education, and parents tended not to be very forthcoming on these topics. Uh, so you had you know, adults who were in unhappy marriages, understood that there was real sexual incompatibility, and that they just didn't know the first thing about how their or their partner's bodies worked. So they had to go buy a book. And where are you going to get a book? Well, you can't go to the bookstore because it's obscene. So, so you have these sort of niche marketers who, who find ways cleverly around the law. Same thing with contraceptives, of course, for families who, for, for partners um, where there are either emotional or economic reasons to be very concerned about having more children, that can kind of impinge on your sex life and your sexual happiness. This is a very, very serious issue. So you have marriages that are falling apart. You have enormous, in a sense, what we might call sexual dysfunction that has to do with anxiety over pregnancy. But again, it's not that easy to come by contraceptives. So the erotica industry is, in a sense, fulfilling that function. Um, at the same time, they're talking about why are people unhappy. That is, if you're a consumer, you know, in let's say the late 1940s, 1950s, you yourself might, oh, do I really want to order from these people? You know, this is, this is an erotica firm, maybe this is smut. So, so the, the entrepreneurs have to overcome a lot of hesitation on the part of potential consumers, and they do so in part, and certainly the person I study, Beata Uza, is, it was the exemplar of this. They do so by putting together catalogs that make you feel like you are embarking on a scientific endeavor, okay? There's a kind of scientific legitimizing of this. The latest science shows that, fill in the blank, okay? Um, so by, 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 by purchasing from the industry, you're not, you're not buying dirty stuff, you're, you're being modern, you're being part of a scientific world. Um, but what happens then? Well, she's gotta make her decision. Is she gonna talk the psychoanalytic line? Is she going to talk the biochemical line? What are her explanations going to be for dysfunction? Now, she's a good entrepreneur, so her answer is all of the above. Um, you know, basically, if you like this explanation, have I got a product for you? If you like this explanation, I've got another product for you, right? So it's, in some ways, a very sort of agnostic space right, where everything is okay, everything is possible, uh, and consumers here, in a sense, have, have, have the ability to sort of choose what explanation suits them best, doesn't necessarily, it will indeed be the most helpful in the end. They might try a product and say, well, that didn't do anything for me, right? Um, but the marketplace comes into a complicated relationship with a kind of science wars, over how to interpret sexual dysfunction. Um, and again, for huge numbers of people um, who aren't, in fact, able to get help from their doctors, they don't have psychotherapists, anything like that, the place they go is the marketplace, and that's where they're finding their answers. 
Oh, fascinating. So tell everyone again the name of your book, so if they'd like to. The book is called yeah. Before Porn Was Legal, The Erotica Empire of Beata Uza. And, uh, and the book is by uh, Elizabeth Heinemann. So um, thank you so much. I'm afraid that we're kind of coming to the end of our program here. I hate to wrap it up, but I want to say thank you to Scott Stewart, John Logsdon, Elizabeth Heinemann, Lisa Heinemann, and to everybody else who is on the program tonight. You've just been amazing. And, uh, and uh, let's, before I say my goodbyes, let's uh, give them a hand. huh? <laughs> So we have come to the end of our program, and uh, I'd like to thank everybody here tonight. Those of you who took time out of your Friday to come and join us, thank you so much. World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Production partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. The program will be broadcast on cable services around the state, on the UITV channel, on Iowa Public Radio, and our, on KRUI-FM. And uh, you can listen anywhere in the world to our iTunes podcast. Uh, more information is available at international.uiowa.edu. The next program is February 10th. I hope you can join us. It's on the history of sustainability. And uh, thanks to my colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Connie Shea, Christopher Clough, and Amy Green. And thanks, as always, to our UITV uh, partners, headed by Mike McBride. So that's it for World Canvas. I'm jo Joan Kerr. Thank you so much for coming. Bye-bye. <laughs>